0: Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you here today. If you could, go and open up your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And uh, just to catch us up a little bit, like I always like to do, uh, we are in John chapter 10, and if you have little headings above the chapter, those are not not inspired or inerrant, but they are put there to kind of help us as we navigate through books in the Bible. It might say something like, I am the good shepherd there above chapter 10. Today we'll start at verse 22, but just to catch us up, uh, Jesus is here alluding to at the beginning of John chapter 10 that the shepherds of Israel are not good shepherds. We looked earlier at how Ezekiel 34 prophesied this, that the shepherds of Israel would be corrupt, they would be bad, they would be shepherding only for selfish gain, they would not be God-honoring or loving their sheep, and that God would have to send his own shepherd To take care of his flock. And we see Jesus alluding to that early in John John 10, and then in John 10, uh, 11 last week. We looked where Jesus says a very clear statement. He says, I am the good shepherd. And we took note to, to, to realize this is one of the I am statements of the book of John, pulling from Exodus 3, the name of God. So he says, I am. Stating that he is this is he is God. Then he combines shepherd right after that. And God is often referred to as the shepherd of the Old Testament. Israel is his people. So when Jesus says, I am, he takes on the official name of God, and then he says, the good shepherd, he combines both of those to make an extremely dogmatic, clear statement that he is God. All right? And he is the great shepherd, the good shepherd that God had sent to take care of his flock. And we looked a lot last week about who his sheep are. We'll look more into that this week. And we also uh, took note that Jesus says there in verse uh, 11 that he will lay down his life for his sheep. And that those are the ones that he is going to die for. And we uh, looked at John 6, 37 as well. That all those the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. He will raise them up. And these are the very same people that Jesus has died for. He has atoned for his sheep. Uh, We'll also find today that all people are not his sheep, and he will clearly state that today. Uh, Let's go on and look at verse 22 through 29 today. I'm going to read through 30, but we're not going to really cover verse 30 today and save it. I know it's at the end of the paragraph. It looks like it should be combined with today, but it just opened up too much material to cover. So we're just going to stop at verse 29 today. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you have sent the Lamb to be sacrificed on our behalf to die for us so that our sins may be completely forgiven, completely atoned for. We thank you that you have sent the shepherd to guide us, to draw us to himself, to lead us into everlasting life. We thank you that you have sent the Christ, you have sent the anointed one, the Messiah who has come to live the life that we could not live, Lord, and die the death that we could not die. We thank you that he has indeed rescued us and saved us and that we are safe in his hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, back to verse 22. If you look at this, uh, this is another one of the feasts that are mentioned And as we've gone through the book of John, we realize the feasts are important, and John is definitely pointing out the fact that these feasts that are prescribed in Leviticus 23 that the Israelites had to fulfill every every single time they came around on an annual basis. Three of them. I know this is kind of you've heard this many times. It was mandatory that they come back to Israel on, and one of those was the Feast of Tabernacles that was covered in uh, John chapter. Uh, 8 and John chapter 9, uh, lots, of, lots of things that were Jesus is saying, hey, I am the light of the world, how that ties in to the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Uh, how he is the source of, of spiritual, the spiritual fountain of life. All of these things were celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles. But here, another feast is mentioned, and there's seven feasts prescribed by God, required by God, part of his law that the Israelites had to keep. This is not going to be found there. So if you look back to, and you don't have to right now, but if you look back to Leviticus 23, and you look at the feasts that are prescribed by God, this one is simply not there. And it's not that it was renamed. Many of the feasts, their name changes through the Old Testament. By the time you get to the New Testament, they're called something a little bit different. Like instead of Feast of Weeks, they would call it Pentecost because it was 50 days after the Passover, right? But this Feast of Dedication is not there. And just a little bit of history here, because uh, it is interesting. You look at Feast of Dedication, where did this come from? So this did not happen. It didn't become a feast until the year 165 before Christ. Uh, And this is actually the feast that they will refer to now as Hanukkah. If you're ever wondering where Hanukkah came about, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes had taken over Jerusalem, had taken over the temple, had even sacrificed pigs in the temple, and had, had, the, had the temple for three years. Um, the, the Jews raised up kind of a guerrilla warfare tactics, and they took it over three years later. In 165, they got their temple back and defeated him. Uh, so in 165, they lit lights in all their homes, and for eight days it became a festival that they had reclaimed the temple. All right, uh, So that still goes on today. You'll see uh, Israelites, Jews, Uh, celebrating Hanukkah, that's what that is going back to. It is not a feast prescribed by God. So I say that because a lot of times when we come across these feasts, I like to show that this is pointing to, like prophecy, what the Christ is going to ultimately accomplish spiritually. Not so with this one because it was put in place by man. All right? Uh, Also in John uh, chapter 10, 22 and 23, uh, you have another... Historical geographical point here, and we'll just cover it quickly. But we have the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, this Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's portico, depending on your uh, translation, there, or the colonnade of Solomon. The, this was attached to the temple, was by the temple in Jerusalem. It was not formally necessarily a part of the temple. So if you go back to how the tabernacle was made when God prescribed that to Moses, you will not see. Solomon's portico there, even uh, though the, it's just not there. But it was added later to Solomon's temple, and that temple was destroyed. And the only thing left of it was this colonnade. Uh, you could picture big columns, kind of a top on it, and people would gather there. All right. And it was near the temple. It was on the temple grounds, but not necessarily part of the temple. So this is where Jesus was. Now, this appears to be a lot of times where he is confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You also note in the book of Acts, uh, Peter's preaching there in Solomon's portico and uh, the church are gathered there to some degree early on in the book of Acts. And I say these things not because that in and of itself is inspiring, but these are it's important. Uh, historical details may seem boring, but they help to show that these events happen in real places and in real time. So the feast of dedication happened We know at this time of year, December time of year, it happened two months after the last festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, and John here gives us the location where these things happen. And it is important because the Bible is not made up. It's not pretend. It's not mythology. It's not like the Book of of Mormons, uh, for instance, where there are no real places or real times when these things happen. John lays these time markers out. He lays these place markers out as well. All right? So let's move on to verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Uh, So here, if you look back at verse 24, the Jews gathered around him. Uh, These are the Jewish officials, the Jewish leadership. Again, we're going to find out that they are the false shepherds that he had confronted earlier, uh, two months ago. And even though you see... There is, if your chapter doesn't necessarily say that there is a difference. At verse 24, there or 20, uh, 22, a gap has occurred of around two months because now it's the Feast of Dedication. So these same people are still animus. They're angry with Jesus. They gather around him. and it, it, The way it's worded here in verse 24 is that Jesus is in Solomon's portico, and they gather around him almost like it, to trap him. But also to verbally trap him as well. And he, they say, How long uh, will you keep us in suspense? Are you the Christ? Or are you not the Christ? And what does Jesus say? He says, uh, I have told you, and you do not believe. So if we recall, Jesus has told them in a multitude of ways by his person, by his work, by the fulfilling of prophecy, by the fulfilling of types, by the fulfilling of the feast. All these things are pointing to him as the Christ. But he has not told the Jews literally verbatim, I am the Christ at up to this point. But he has told them through everything that he's doing, which is far better. Is it easier to say that you are the Christ and just put a few words together or show that you are the Christ, right? To heal a blind man who's been born blind, to heal a man who's been lame all of his life etc. So these things that he has showed them speak much more than him just literally saying these words. So he has showed them, revealed to them that he is the Christ, but they want him to say the words. Now, Jesus' life and his teaching were fulfilling the biblical prophesied definition of the Christ. And what you find, you'll notice this even with the disciples, even with the uh, um, some of the people that are following him, but especially the Jewish leadership, They did not focus on all of the Old Testament types and shadows and prophecies, but really emphasized what they wanted the most right then and there. They wanted the Messiah to be king. They wanted him to rule on earth. They wanted him to vanquish the Romans and truly set up the kingdom like David had it back in Samuel. So we've looked at that prophecy before that from the lineage of, of, of David, a king was going to come, an everlasting king, right? And that's what they wanted. And they focused on that king coming and building uh, Jerusalem back, building uh, the Israelite nation back to its days of prestige. And that's what they wanted. They really did not even look at, uh, ignored completely, you might say, the other, other prophecies about the suffering servant, about the one who would die for them and would serve instead they wanted the king and the king only you see this in several places look back at john 6 verse 15 john 6 verse 15 john 6 uh, obviously we've looked at that already where jesus fed the thousands of people some estimate around twenty thousand, just with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish much is left over and it's definitely a supernatural feeding and what do the people do Uh, They cry out that this must be the prophet, the one prophesied by Moses. That would come, right? And also, this must be the Christ, and he must be the king. And this is the main thing that they want. Look at this, 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They have, again, a warped uh, definition. Of the Christ. They want a king. They want a king right now. He he has fed them. What better king can there be than this, right? You have nonstop supply of food. That's me. It's self-centered. They want him to be king. What happens when Jesus starts teaching them? Well, if you fast forward through John chapter 6, we realize when he says, hey, I am the bread of life. Eat of me if you want to have eternal life. And what do the people do? They abandon him. They don't want that kind of Christ. They don't want their sins forgiven. They don't want the sacrificial lamb. They don't want eternal life. They want pleasure and prestige right now. They wanted him to be king. So there in chapter 6, we see the very one they wanted to be king. When he starts teaching them why he's really here, they abandon him and don't want to see him as the Christ at all. Uh, the Christ they wanted was one of political power and prestige. One that would give them political power and prestige as well. Now, what do the Jewish leaders finally do when Jesus actually professes to be the Christ? If you recall, he does actually tell them, yes, I am am the Christ. And he does it after he's arrested. Turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And look at verse 63 through 68. Here, Jesus has been arrested. He is before Caiaphas. And he is uh, in some kind of, you might say, an inquisition here. They are trying to, again, entrap him by his words. Look at verse 63. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard, now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ." Who is it that struck you? And, and the point of this is, this is what would happen. This is what they were trying to do when they entrapped him probably that day in Solomon's portico. You know, stop, tell us who you are right now, tell us if you are the Christ. Uh, if he said, yes, I am the Christ, this is what they would have done then. They would have accused him of blasphemy. They would have tried to arrest him, etc. So instead, he points to his work. He points to all that he's been doing. I have told you in every way that I can. And they hate those ways. Remember the blind man that was healed? What do they do about that? They hate the blind man. They kick him out of their synagogue because he's been healed. Uh, The the man that was was crippled, that was healed. uh, They hate it because he picked up his mat and walked with it. They hate the people he has healed. They hate Jesus for healing them. They try to accuse him of breaking the law because he did these things on the Sabbath. Jesus points to the fact that he is greater than the Sabbath, right? His father's working, and so is he. But here you see this. The moment he acknowledges he is the, I am the Christ, you've said it correctly, they want to put him to death. Uh, So were the people right or wrong in thinking that the Messiah would be king? And this is where it gets interesting because obviously uh, Jesus is a king, uh, but they wanted that king right now. Here and now in front of us, they had a very limited scope of Jesus' kingship. And they had a very self-centered view of him being king over just them and them alone. Uh, they didn't see the whole picture, all right? Uh, you could call this, you can call it different things, but you have a, it's a very limited view in the least of the Messiah, where they neglected everything else and just wanted their needs met. They wanted him to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Kick out the Romans and be king. Jesus, as we find out, is a much greater king than that. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. And there's as Jesus does die, as Jesus rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, he is. He is king, and it's it's interesting, of course, because has the Son of God, has God the Son, ever been out of control? Has he ever not been uh, a sovereign? You might say, and of course, he always has been. Uh, the difference here, you get with now Jesus, is you have the you have God the Son uh, incarnate, in fleshed, right? With with the with the flesh of David, the David servant, the descendant of David, combined. So Jesus now takes that that body back with him and that's when we see this it's fully fulfilled now that you have God the son uh, also in the incarnation now back to heaven reigning supreme with this eternal kingdom that will never end Uh, we see this reflected here in Revelation chapter 5 11 through 14 then uh, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, in this section, last week we looked in Revelation 7, verse 17. We saw where the shepherd and the lamb, two different types of the Old Testament, are brought over. And you see them connected in the same person of Jesus Christ. All right? Here we see two other types uh, combined. You see the kingly role of Jesus combined. With the lamb. Uh, So you see these two combined together here. And so what the Jews often did is they only focused on the king. They didn't want a shepherd to shepherd their souls. They didn't want a lamb to be sacrificed for their sins. They didn't want the bread of life from heaven that they must eat of to have eternal life. They only wanted the king. And when they saw Jesus was not going to fulfill that role for them in the way they wanted it fulfilled... They rejected him as the Christ. But Jesus is both. He is king, he is shepherd, he is sheep. All these types, all these prophecies are coming to fulfillment in him. Uh, Look at Philippians 2, verse 8 through 11. And as you turn to Philippians 2, verse 8 through 11, keep that revelation passage in mind. All are bowing down and worshiping him, seeing the lamb is worthy. He was slain, but now He has received all power, all wealth, all wisdom and might. Uh, Philippians 2, 8-11. through 11. Paul writes, And being found in human form, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed him, on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you have the one who they did not want to see as king, who has, who has been perfectly obedient to God. He has died, but he's risen from the dead. He has been exalted now, and Paul says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the one that they would not see as the Christ, who would not see as the Messiah because he was not the king that they wanted, he is the king. They will bow and they will confess that Jesus is Lord sooner or later. Now, a dead man cannot rule, right? But someone who has risen from the dead, Jesus Christ, who is God and man, reigns eternal. So his kingship does, he is king. And it will only be more revealed until finally you get to Revelation 21 and 22, and where you see it ultimately done, where Jesus is the king. Jesus has vanquished all of his enemies. They are separated out, and he is ruling over his people. And so we see this finally fulfilled ultimately and visualized and seen at the end of the book of Revelation. Now, the point of that is, The Pharisees wanted only that. That's all they wanted. They didn't want Christ doing all these other things. They certainly didn't want this this humble Jesus that they were seeing. Uh, Let's continue on. Go back to John chapter 10. And (coughs) look at verse 25 there at the end. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Then he says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And this is extremely important because there had been false Christ. People who claimed to be Christ who had come and been proven that they were just saying the words. There was no supernatural backing. And Jesus says here, look, you're just wanting the words again, but I come with this supernatural backing. It is my works. He says the works that I do in my father's name, bear witness about me. So what works is he talking about here? Uh, Works are another way of speaking about supernatural signs, miracles, and wonders. And sometimes in the Bible, you'll see the word works right there with those others. Works, supernatural uh, wonders, miracles, signs, etc. All together. And that's what he's referring to here. Uh, Hold your place there. Look at Acts 2, verse 22. You'll see where Peter uses this as well to prove that Jesus was the Christ who is lived, who has died, who is risen from the dead, and that they should have known that Jesus was the Christ by the works that he did. Acts 2.22, you'll see this, this coupling of the words, listing of the words, and the word works right there. Many men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So this is important. God has validated, authenticated Jesus Christ by the wonders, by the works, by the signs that only God could do. Uh, Man cannot replicate these signs, all right? This is obviously supernatural, and that's what Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that day. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Peter answers on the day of Pentecost the same way. He says, these things have been done Uh, the works, you have seen them. You should know who Jesus is. Uh, If you think of Nicodemus, uh, back in John chapter 3, even though Nicodemus was not uh, a believer, uh, it doesn't seem yet in John chapter 3, we do see that he was at least seeing rightly that supernatural comes from God, not man. And you see in John 3, 2, Nicodemus says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How does he know this? Look what he says. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we see Nicodemus at least starting to put some things together. You, you can't do these if you're just a man. You have to be sent from God, right? And that's what Jesus is saying that day when he gets surrounded by the Jewish leadership I've told you who I am. You do not believe. The works tell you who I am. Uh, if you think of John 9, verse 32, uh, the man born blind. Uh, he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do he could do nothing. Alright, he could do nothing. So you see Nicodemus putting those things together, and obviously here in John 9, you see the man born blind. That whole chapter just really, his faith is progressing there where he finally sees who Jesus truly is. Like he he goes from a man to a righteous man to a prophet to eventually he sees he has to be from God. And to the end of John chapter 9, you see him bowing down and worshiping Jesus as Lord. So he sees him as who he truly is, that he is the Messiah. These works, though, the Pharisees do not like them as we'll get to in John chapter eleven, uh, Jesus raises, rises, raises Lazarus from the dead, and uh, what do they want to do? They want to put Jesus to death and Lazarus to death. I mean, this—no one is going around doing these things. There is no one who is making blind eyes open, deaf ears to hear, the lame to walk, much less raising someone from the dead. This is not happening, and yet. In front of the Pharisees, they see this, they witness these things. It makes them more angry inside. Why is that? They don't want him to be the Christ. Look at verse 26. We get to the ultimate reason why they're rejecting the Christ. Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, this is a huge insult to the Jewish leadership who claim to be in charge of the temple, who claim to be in charge of all things religious, right? And from the temple and from their thoughts flow out to all the synagogues that are scattered around. And these are the main shepherds of Israel, the best of the best, cream of the crop sheep, or so they think. And here Jesus says, you are not among my sheep. So he picks up basically where he left off two months earlier at the Feast of Tabernacles, talking about the sheep, and now he is, he's gone. He picks right back up almost where they left off the last conversation where he said, I am the good shepherd, right? And he was talking about the his sheep and how the shepherds were not shepherding correctly. He picks right back up on this and says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Now, this is no huge surprise. And Jesus had already told them that Abraham is actually not their father, even though genetically he was. Spiritually, they are not. That is not the way this is, This works. And Jesus also told them that God was not their father, but who was? Satan himself. So here he calls them out again. says, you are not my sheep, and this is why you do not believe. Real sheep believe in Jesus Christ as he is. Look at verse 27. Jesus goes on to say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, what are some differences between the, the sheep and the non-sheep? There are several things to point out in this chapter. Uh, so he says the Jewish leaders are not his sheep, but there are true sheep uh, out there. So what are some differences? Number one, we see that his sheep listen to him. Look back earlier at John chapter 10, verse 3, the last time he was talking about this. Jesus says, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This is talking about the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, which is Jesus, God in the flesh. So his sheep listen to him. So there is a calling, a supernatural calling, you can call it that, that's absolutely fine, where God draws, pulls, brings us to himself. If you are a saved person, if you repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, that is because God has called you to himself. Jesus called, your great shepherd called, and you came to him. All right? So He sheep listen, hear his voice. He calls them on, them by name, and he leads them out. It's beautiful. When We, we spent some time thinking about this, but this is very intimate. It's very one-on-one, where Jesus is not just calling the mass multitudes. Uh, he does call the church universal, you might say, but also it's one-on-one. He knows you by name. And you get this in the, in the book of Revelation as well, right? The Lamb's book of life. Those whose names were in it. Were, it's like, this is amazing. So he calls you by name. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. You are on your way to heaven. It's intimate. It's one-on-one. He knows you. He called you. You're saved. Beautiful. All right. So number one, his sheep listen to him. Uh, those that do not listen to him are not his sheep. These Jewish leaders. Number two, his sheep follow him. So this would involve obedience and, and following Christ, walking in Christ's ways, right? Continuing in faith, continuing in repentance, and obeying Christ. Those who are living in unrepentant sin reveal that they are not his true sheep. So his sheep follow him. John ten four, When he was has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Uh, number three, his sheep know him. Uh, John ten fourteen says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So here we see a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, this would not be like the Jehovah Witnesses or like the Mormons or like Muslims who, who say the word Jesus but have a different definition to the side. They do not know the true Jesus, all right? His real sheep know who he really is. You think back to just earlier in John chapter 9 where the blind man saw who he really was. More than his eyes being opened, he was made alive. He was regenerated. He was The good shepherd called to him. And he saw Jesus. He knew Jesus as Lord and God and worshipped him. This is a true knowledge. Of, and it's not just about adding up the facts. But this is a God making you alive where you see Jesus for who he truly is. Uh, number four, his sheep believe in him. John ten twenty six, as we just read, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. So true belief in the true Jesus reveals that you are a true sheep. Uh, the Pharisees who claim to be the greatest sheep there were uh, are proven not to be because they do not believe in him, the Shepherd. All right, look, look at verse 28. I want to spend a moment on verse 28. It says, I give them, speaking of his sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. i read it one more time. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, this is a powerful scripture. If you have not set this verse to memory, I encourage you to do so, and for your young ones uh, as well. Uh, have you ever struggled with the doctrine of eternal security? And this is something where, where you could, it might be personal. It could be something where you've come from other churches in the past. Uh, this is an extremely important point, and it's really hard to get around John 10:28 if you struggle with eternal insecurity. Eternal insecurity would be uh, wondering, right, if, uh, if you are may staying saved, uh, or will you stay saved? Will you become unsaved? Can you right now know for sure if you're on your way to heaven or not? Uh, can, you know, can these things even be known? Uh, you have people like, in, in history, uh, Jacobus Arminius that comes around in the late 1500s who versus the common theology of the time, reformed theology of the time uh, with John Calvin who goes against this fully saying that no believer should claim to be eternally secure, that you could ebb and flow as far as you could lose your salvation one day and regain it the next. And that became uh, uh, quite common in lots of churches, lots of denominations, even to this day. If you believe that you can have eternal security, you are probably in the minority amongst professing Christians. How can that possibly be? right? How, who determines what the rules are on this? Uh, you look to John 10:28 when you come up with these, the, when you're debating someone, talking to someone, or debating your own self, right? Go back to John 10, 10 because there's so much comfort here. Now, you have denominations out there today, tons of them. I won't begin to list them all, but we got, like, Methodist, uh, obviously, people know that one. That would be one where they think you can lose your salvation, all right? The, the uh, Wesley brothers uh, were, were adamant that in that direction against George Whitfield back in the day, and they formed the Church uh, Assembly of Gods. All right, and um, all the Pentecostal type churches as well think that you can lose your salvation. Now this is this is a horrible thing to be taught that, but some Christians, even though they haven't been taught that, still think that. Oftentimes is because we can't wrap our minds fully around the love of God. And it could, it could deal, with all, deal, deal with all kinds of past issues, comparing God's love to different kinds of earthly love, where you have to do things in order to get love. But God's love is not like that. Jesus Christ has accomplished everything. Those who believe in Christ are in him, and this love is everlasting. It will never go away. So that you should, as a believer, if you see Jesus for who he truly is, if you worship Jesus as God, as, as, the, as, the, as God in the flesh, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, who lived, who died, who rose again from the dead, you see him for who he truly is. You see you for who you are as a sinner. You're repenting of your sin. You're believing in Jesus. You are his sheep. What should you do? Should you worry about your shepherd rejecting you? No. And that's what Jesus says. He says, Pharisees, you're not my sheep. That's why you do not believe. But my sheep, listen, they hear, I call, they follow, and they stay with me. In fact, I give them eternal life. Now, the Arminian view of salvation, named after Jacobus Arminius uh, from that, that historic time period, wreaks havoc on the mind. Think about this for a moment. Creates weak Christians, undervalues the atonement of Jesus Christ, and severely alters the teaching of Christ, and what I mean by that is, if you're if you're always wondering if you're saved or unsaved, am I saved? Am I unsaved? Am I saved today? Am I unsaved? Uh, and always trying to figure this out, you never progress. You never go forward in strength in life. Instead of acknowledging I am saved, Jesus Christ is my shepherd. He's given me eternal life, and moving forward in strength, you're always going to be weak. You're always going back because you're always looking at yourself instead of looking. At the shepherd, look to the shepherd for your strength. He says, I give you eternal life. You will never perish. You're in my hand. And then you have Christians who constantly say, no, 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 no. It's up to me. It's up to me. It's up to me. Or you have God in the flesh saying, no, I give you eternal life. Now, such theology intentionally or inadvertently still turns grace. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me get this point. Some people combine Arminian theology and what we might call Reformed or Calvinistic theology talking about the perseverance of the saints so we would believe in yes, perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints eternal security all these things are used synonymously here Arminians would say that you can lose it you can regain it, you can lose it, you can regain it All right. some people combine these things together and say okay, well you're saved by grace and that would be more over here in the Reformed theology camp for sure uh, not by works but it's up to us to maintain our salvation. And that is an unhealthy combination of those, all right? So some people will say, okay, yes, yes, I see that we're saved by grace, not by works, So no man may boast, obviously. But we must maintain it. It's up to us to then keep it. Is that what is being taught? Absolutely not. Again, that is, that is a man-made salvific theology that's not based on Scripture. Instead, we the same grace... That has saved us is the same grace that keeps us saved. It is all of God. So that that combination of salvific salvation theologies, uh, such theology intentionally or inadvertently still turns grace into works-based salvation. How? Because you say, "Okay, I'm saved by grace, but now I go back to works. Um, it's up to me to work in order to keep myself saved." And that's not what the Bible presents. A saved person will work. Jesus Christ has prepared works in advance for us to go do. There will be a change in life, obviously. But we do not work in order to be saved. We're saved and then we work. It's the consequences of being saved. All right? Look at verse 28 again. Three powerful statements that all sheep should take great comfort in. If you just take them one by one. Look at this. I give them eternal life. Next one. They will never perish. The next one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And take those and apply those directly to yourself. If you are a believer, if you are a sheep, then these are applying to you where you can say, Jesus gave me eternal life. How long is eternal life? It goes on. It is eternal. If if, if he gave you a short uh, one-day salvation or two-day salvation, would he ever say, "I I give you eternal life? No, he'd say, I give you temporary life, right? The whole point of this is it is eternal. It is never going. And then once Jesus gives his sheep eternal life, there is no way for that eternal life to become temporary life. It is ongoing. Even in the point of death, Paul says, to be, the the moment his body stopped working, he knew he was going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. There is no doubt. So we have that great assurance. Number two, uh, going back to verse 28 there, uh, they will never perish. You could say, I will never perish. If you are a sheep, this is just as he gives eternal life. So this is positive. Okay. Uh, Here you have a negative. They will, or I will never perish. And perish here is more than just physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. They're receiving the wrath and curse of God. Eternity in hell. You will never perish. So all those that have been given by the Father to the Son will be raised up. They have, will have eternal life. They do have eternal life. They will never perish. So no, no point in your life will you ever become a non-sheep. All right? You are a sheep. You have eternal life. You will never perish. Who says this? God. God in the flesh. So when you struggle with these issues, 1028 is a great place to go back to. His third statement there, he says, And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And you as well, no one will snatch you or me out of his hand. Uh, Who has the power to snatch you out of the hand of Christ? And the point is, no one. So you have these three statements that just pile up strength upon strength upon strength. My sheep, I give them eternal life. It's everlasting. There is no end. They will never perish. Not one of them will ever be lost, right? Uh, uh, what, what else is the third one? Uh, no one can snatch them out of his hand. And so here you have the, the picture of, of being in the hand of Christ. And no one can snatch them out. Now, I have heard this done before, and maybe you have as well, from those in the other camp say, What well, doesn't say you can't jump out on your own? Something like that. Some of you are nodding your head. You might have heard something like that before, all right? I believe that's included in here when he says the no one, all right? Because you are a one, and no one can snatch the. It's like no one can snatch you out of Christ's hands, but you think you can pry the hand open and jump out? I mean, that's, it, this is borderline ridiculous, all right? And then to add, add more strength to this, look at the next verse. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, this, this level of security is amazing. For you as a believer to rest in today. You have been given eternal life. You will never perish. You're in the hand of Christ. And then, I mean, you're adding strength upon strength to infinity times infinity here, right? You're in the hand of God the Son incarnate, and yet God the Father's hand is over that as well. And again, this is a figure of speech here. God the Father does not have a literal hand. But the point of this is is that there is no way out. You are in the most secure position you could possibly be in. That there is no way that you can lose eternal life. No way that you will ever perish. Why is that? Because you are his sheep. And what did he do for his sheep? The verses earlier, he lays down his life for his sheep. Your sins have been forgiven. You are a child of God. You will never become an unchild of God, non-child of God. You are a sheep. All right. So this is a beautiful passage to focus on, to concentrate on, and to think of these things. Uh, the object that is being held in the hand of Christ, in the hand of God, is you. It is you. Uh, amazing to think on uh, how secure we are as a believer. So if you've battled this, or if you've come from places where these, are, these things have been taught before, go back to this passage. Read it. Read it slowly. I mean, it is an airtight argument. It is meant to be a, a wall, an irrefutable wall, that you, my sheep are preserved. I have them. They're in my possession. I am the great shepherd. I am God. I have called them to myself. No one can call them back. They are mine. Beautiful place to focus on there, all right? Um, uh, is, is there anything more powerful than God that could conquer the power of God and pull you out of this secure position? Obviously, this is rhetorical. Uh, the answer is obviously no, right? Nothing can. And, and this, is, this is where you get into some those that think they can lose their salvation, regain their salvation, lose their salvation, regain their salvation. In the end, they have a, a, an immature or weak view of God. And a higher view of themselves, and it's sad sad because they struggle with eternal insecurity, which seems kind of humble. Remember, my one of my favorite teachers, R.C. Sproul, had a student tell him one day that if you believed in eternal security, it was an issue of pride. If you really believe that you had eternal security, which is not the case at all, we're just trusting in the Word of God, right? But those who ebb and flow out of this and think that they don't have eternal security, or if they do, that's a pride issue. Actually and seeing themselves more powerful than God. What can take you out of the hand of God? Nothing. And if you think you can, then that shows that you think you're more powerful than the hand of God. So instead, uh, instead of having a strong view of yourself and a weak view of God, reverse that. You are the sheep. He is the great shepherd. He is the one who carries you, takes care of you, nurtures you, feeds your soul, calls you to himself, shelters and protects you. Uh, In summary today, the self-proclaimed greatest sheep of Israel are revealed once again to not be the true sheep. How is that revealed? Because they do not see Jesus for who he truly is. They do not know him. They do not believe in him. They reject him. All right. Uh, uh, If you claim to be a believer today, make sure that your faith is in Christ alone for your salvation and not that you're contributing works to that in order to be saved. Christ continues to teach in this section that he is the prophesied good shepherd who nurtures and protects his sheep, not only through this life, but for all of eternity. He does this for all of his sheep, and he does this for you personally as well. As a believer, take great comfort in knowing that you're in the hand of the good shepherd today and that nothing can ever change that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided the work of redemption, the work of salvation, the work of atonement that has absolutely secured us, that we have been secured by you and that we are in your hand and nothing can ever remove us. As believers, we should take wonderful comfort in that. And God, I pray that there are people here today that struggle with this. May they find rest in Christ and rest in his completed work and trust what the good shepherd says, that he gives eternal life. No one will ever perish. No one can take them out of your hand. God, help us to take great rest, great comfort in these passages today. And at the same time, we pray, Lord, if someone is like the Pharisees who are thinking that they are right before you but have not looked to Christ, And believed in him. We pray that you would draw them to yourself today. May their eyes be opened. May they see Christ for who he truly is. May they see their sin for what it is. And God I pray that they would be saved even today. Lord help us. As we go through this life. With so many ups and downs. And so many things that we do not know. And so many places of of discomfort in this life. And insecurity. But may we understand that you are our great shepherd. We are in your hand. You're nurturing us, you're feeding us, and you will throughout this life on into eternity. We thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us that is everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray.